I am fortunate enough to have lived a nice middle-class lifestyle in an advanced country. As such, I have little complaints about the opportunities that my life has afforded me. Still, if somebody offered me a few million dollars for doing very little, I would consider myself even more blessed than I am now. Perhaps the most accurate statement in the history of civilization is that while money can't buy you happiness, it does bring you a more pleasant form of misery. Money does have a tendency to change everything, particularly how we see the world and the actions of others. We tend to default to trying to understand someone's decisions as though we were the ones making it. Therefore, if you react differently than I would, your behavior would be described as odd to me. The socio-economic class that we have lived in provides the most fertile ground for understanding the actions of others because we tend to exist surrounded by those who are within the same economic class. Our self-selected nature, living around others who can afford the same houses, befriending those who have similar lifestyles to us, and educating our children to the highest degree that we can afford, creates a somewhat monolithic structure to our society one that is largely focused on wealth, or lack thereof. Thus, one of the most valuable lessons in the field of sociology comes in the form of learning the unwritten rules of poverty. For instance, each socioeconomic group tends to look at the world differently. The poor tend to care largely about local issues. The middle class sees the world in terms of how it affects their own nation. Since most international stories fail to have any effect on America, most of my fellow countrymen have absolutely no idea what is going on domestically for the vast majority of the world. Those who live a life stamped with the label of wealthy, however, primarily see the world internationally. They have the ability to travel or move either themselves or their assets in ways that the poor can never dream of. Thus, the wealthy tend to know as much about what is going on in the world as they do within their own hometown. We will examine a number of the unwritten rules as expressed by Dr. Ruby Payne as we try to imagine what life was like for a man who had everything he could ever wish for. Perhaps even more magical was the fact that this rich man was never informed that he had ever made a single mistake. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the third episode in a series of five regarding Louis XIV, the domestic life of the Sun King. The Fronde a five-year rebellion that at times more than hinted towards an inherent French desire to overthrow their king in favor of Parliament, put Louis and the rest of his house on notice. Louis's corrupt advisor, Cardinal Mazarin, as well as the more than snooty attitudes of the foreign-born Queen Regent, had annoyed the French people to no end. Both Mazarin and Anne remained at court, though, protected by the brilliance that the popularity of the young monarch Louis XIV bestowed upon all those in his presence. 
Weakness, however, even when it comes after a victory, can invite challengers to those in power. The church was one such threat to the crown. It had played a clever game during the Frand, publicly it stayed out of the civil disruptions, while quietly encouraging the people who were engaged in the disturbances to back the ascension of Parliament. By the end of the conflict, it had managed to successfully position itself as an independent institution that could, if it felt compelled to, check the power of the king. In order to convince others that the crown rested higher upon one's head than the church's crucifix, Louis set off to the city of Reims for his official coronation on May 30, 1654. The Gazette de France claimed of the ovation on the day that the king received the most dazzling and most sincere and the most deserved proof of love from his peoples. The official historian referred to the young man as the sun in the middle of all the stars and the veritable father of the arts and the sciences. Jesuits at the ceremony directly compared him to Jesus Christ, expressing their joy at both Jesus and Louis crowned. Both are given to us by God. One is the eldest son. The other is the husband of the church. The historian's reference to the son appears to have been the first test of what would become the unofficial motto of Louis. Most history books will include as fact the idea that Louis uttered the phrase, Le et cesse moi, or I am the Sun King. It is highly unlikely, however, that the young monarch ever made such a statement, and if he did utter such a turn of phrase, he certainly didn't do so this early into his reign. The king's choice of Sun King came to reflect two facts. First was the idea that Versailles glittered like the sun due to the absolutely absurd amount of gold and mirrors placed within the palace. Second was the notion that the entire French court revolved around him, just as the earth revolves around the sun. In Louis's thirteenth year of life, neither were established. The boy king was also significantly more humble at this early stage of his life, supplementing himself to the image of the church, even as he pushed back against it as an institution designed to check and balance the executive. Louis went to church every two to three days, unless the occasion was a holy feast day, in which case he attended mass two or three times across a single day. He spent a small fortune on seeking out and purchasing ancient texts from Greece and the Middle East that related to Catholicism in an effort to turn France into the center of the Christian world. But make no mistake about it, even at this stage of his life the Sun King demanded to be the center of attention, even in God's house. Drums and piccolos were played to signal the King's entrance to a chapel. He received incense in the same manner that the priest did, and would personally consecrate the host. On holy days he would rise up from his pew to sing High Mass. As he knelt before the altar celebrating God, the entire crowd knelt facing him. The churches that serviced him even put overflow seating on each side of the altar so that more parishioners would be able to experience their king 
experiencing Mass. If you missed your chance to see the king bowing down to God, you would quickly be granted another opportunity, as he is believed to have attended more than 30,000 Masses over the course of his lifetime. That is quite the impressive level of devotion, considering that he lived on this earth for approximately 28,000 days. For those of you who didn't come here to be forced to do their own math, that comes out to 2,000 less days alive than Masses attended. Destiny is an interesting concept, something that many of us believe doesn't exist, but something that others believe they can't escape. The unwritten rules of poverty say the following about human nature and the idea of some other force controlling our fate. Those who grow up impoverished tend to believe in the concept of destiny and trust that it shapes numerous aspects of their life. For the poor, destiny tends to be a negative concept something that they cannot escape, as if they were adherents of Hinduism who think that their poverty is a result of karma punishing them for actions taken in their prior lives. The middle class believes in our ability to shape our own destiny, choosing to believe that they will be rewarded with good things in the future if they make the right choices now. Interestingly, those who grow up in wealthy homes tend to have similar views as the poor, believing that destiny is very much a real thing in our lives. In this age, Louis would have been told that he was destined to rule due to his birth status. Unlike the poor, however, who believe that destiny is something that they can't avoid, the wealthy believe in the French concept of noblesse oblige, an idea that because destiny has placed them in an advantageous system, they must use their privilege to help those less fortunate than them. Now whether they use that wealth to fund soup kitchens or create businesses purely designed to launch themselves up into space is another discussion. But ask most how the most fortunate among us ought to act, and they agree that the billionaire should do as Jesus did, aiding the sick, poor, and wretched among us. In order to live out the example of Jesus, Louis would personally wash the feet of 12 impoverished children every Easter. He never hesitated to perform a court ritual whereupon, after taking communion, he would proceed to touch the king's evil. This rather disturbingly named activity supposedly utilized God's healing powers through the king's anointed hands in order to heal those who were sick with tuberculosis. Shakespeare describes the act during Macbeth's Act 4, Scene 3, which reads, There are a crew of wretched souls that stay his cure. Their malady convinces the great assay of art, but at his touch such sanctity hath heaven given his hand. Tis called the evil, a most miraculous work in this good king, which often since my here remain in England I have seen him do. How he solicits heaven! himself best knows, but strangely visited people, all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye, the mere despair of surgery he cures. Hanging a golden stamp about their neck, put on with holy prayers, and tis spoken to the succeeding royalty he leaves, the healing benediction. 
Unfortunately, there is no sign that all this royal touching did anything. But receiving it meant that in addition to one coin from the king's coffers, the infected could return to society, likely transmitting their suffering to others with an illness that it is believed to have killed more humans than any other microbe in history. Although they weren't fully aware yet of the science of TB, the king's hands were wiped with a wine-soaked cloth between each touching of a shoulder. As we know from the COVID pandemic, the single best defense involves washing germs from our hands. That simple science kept Louis safe throughout his life. During one marathon session, Louis touched the bare shoulders of and marked the sign of the cross over 300 sick citizens. During his reign, it is believed that he performed the ritual for more than 200,000 individuals. His devotion wasn't just sincere religious belief, however, as he told his son that Catholicism taught obedience to kings as lieutenants of God. Therefore, for reasons of prudence and common sense as well as faith, Catholicism should be the first and most important part of our policy. In other words, King Louis knew that his power depended at least in part on whether France stayed Catholic. The Sun King's work ethic actually identifies him as belonging more to the middle class than the upper echelons of society. The middle class strongly value work and tend to spend their entire lives devoted to it, which might explain why I spend my summers off writing entire seasons for this podcast. The upper class tend to be driven by connections, particularly financial, political, and social. They tend to stay within a job for long periods after they hit their retirement age, but do so in order to be around the people more than to collect their paycheck. Perhaps the fact that Louis didn't have to put in any work in establishing these connections is why they seem to not matter as much to him. As we will see in later episodes in this series, Louis spent his fortune without worrying and hung on too long to the wrong political and social connections. Perhaps it was his free spending that enabled Louis to share as well in what the poor view as their driving forces, namely survival, personal relations, and something that Louis loved, entertainment. His religious dedication carried over to the running of the country, as it was said that work is the first object of his majesty, and he prefers it to everything else. He nearly never missed a council meeting, which occurred for two hours each weekday. This was in addition to three standing meetings regarding the kingdom's finances. Louis wanted to know everything that was happening, and be as equally involved as his ministers in deciding what the nation's next course of action would be. By necessity, the king's hours were kept as regularly as those of a monk. Much of that time was devoted to the land's finances, or lack thereof. Money meant power in this kingdom, as the unwritten but tacit agreement existed that the nobles would obey the king as long as he continued to not tax their sizable fortunes. This backdoor handshake deal maintained Louis's rule, but would go on to doom his successors. 
His early attempts at tax collection turned France upside down and inside out, making it appear that the legacy of this bourbon would be one of reform. Few imagined him lasting in power for so long that other nations would lap those reforms. As much as the first third of his rule was reformist, the last third was conservative in nature as he struggled to maintain a throne for his great-grandchildren to inherit. By imprisoning the corrupt superintendent of finances, a man named Fouquet, the king was finally able to access the majority of France's tax collection. Prior to the discovery of the superintendent's corruption, the state only had 35-40% to 40 of the revenue that was collected at its disposal. Stealing 60% of all revenues in what was one of the wealthiest countries in Europe is quite brazen, and one wonders why it took so long for the state to catch on. As is true regarding all acts of corruption, the signs existed for those who were willing to look. The superintendent had stolen enough to ring the entirety of his own private island in the Caribbean with 400 cannons. Unfortunately for him, he was unable to get there before his crimes were brought into the light. Perception and trust of the legal system varies widely between social classes, with the wealthy tending to trust a system which is heavily advantaged to a group that can afford access to the most legal help. Police within wealthy areas tend to build stronger community relationships, or at least ones that are perceived as more positive, whereas poorer communities tend to have a strong distrust of the system oftentimes failing to turn to it in times of need. Louis was a believer in the law as a source of societal good, but felt that France's legal system was in need of significant reform in order to bring about that good. One of his most successful but tedious projects was the Code Louis, a total revamp of the French judicial system. It was a necessary change in order to merge the two halves of the kingdom, divisions that those of you who listen to our series on Joan and Eleanor will be intimately aware of. Northern France had relied upon customary law, while the southern portion of the nation had adopted Roman canonical law, or written law. The writing down of legal norms was an important step in the creation of France becoming a constitutional state, but ending the monarchy wasn't Louis' intent when he sat down to rewrite the nation's rules. After years of work, the Code Louis recognized a mere 35 laws. Included among them were rules regarding state record-keeping, courtroom procedure, torture, the death penalty, and slavery within the king's ships. In order to better understand the system, Louis worked on a few legal cases as a lawyer each Monday in the run-up to the publishing of the new code. The Code Louis has largely been forgotten, but one portion of it, the Code Noir, remains significant to historians studying the French, as it intimately describes their attempt to regulate slash somewhat limit slavery within the expanding overseas French world. France considered slavery to be morally wrong, significantly earlier than most other seafaring nations. 
Louis X proudly proclaimed in 1315 that France signifies freedom. His policy was similar to the American-Cuban immigration policy of wet foot, dry foot, as any slave who managed to set foot on French soil would be made free. But slavery was an essential ingredient in the sugar trade, which was the de facto moneymaker coming out of the Caribbean islands, particularly French-held Haiti. The Code Noir authorized slavery in France's colonies, while simultaneously placing restrictions upon those who owned slaves, including the black Frenchmen who had previously achieved freedom, perhaps from first setting foot on French soil. These men and women tended to be highly literate business owners who oftentimes, as was in the case of Troussant Louverture, owned their own slaves. Some of these rules were positive. For instance, the code limited how much an owner, whether they were white or black, could punish a slave. It also outlawed the forced separation of families, granted immediate citizenship to any slave who was freed by their owner or the courts, and enabled slaves access to the legal system if they were experiencing brutal treatment as a condition of their slavery. Still, access was one thing. Achieving justice was far harder. We will explore these laws and how the judicial system worked in the real-world environment of colonial Haiti in the last series of this season. The Code Noir also had negative effects upon the slave populace. In addition to legally authorizing the existence of the institution itself, it included rules that mandated forced conversion to Catholicism for all those enslaved laws that designated which children born of slaves were chattel, as well as legalizing punishments that saw a slave's wife, mistress, or children executed if he were to strike at their master. Although Louis never expressed a desire to have his own slaves, he did have a love of money, which coincided directly with the three expressed goals of the Code Noir first of which was strengthening the power of the crown over its distant dominions. Secondly, flexing the state's muscles by showing that it had the power to regulate humanity. Third, promoting the economic engine that was sugarcane cultivation. Seemingly at random, the Code Noir also expelled all Jews living in colonial territories due to their being the quote-unquote sworn enemies of the Christian faith. Seriously, it sticks out like a sore thumb within the Code Noir, which literally translates to the Black Code. French Jews were shocked at the decision and at the fact that they were only granted three months to abandon their homes. Louis had begun his reign religiously tolerant, but the longer he ruled, the more indoctrinated he became beneath the belief that his church was the only church. We'll look more at the devastating effects of his shift to the motto of one king, one law, and one faith in our fifth and final episode of this series. Oddly enough, Mazarin, his primary advisor, maintained a strict wall between church and state this despite his status as a cardinal for the Catholic Church. He continued to serve as an advisor to the king, despite the fact that Louis had seized his lawfully held position against the cardinal's private lover, the queen regent. 
his mother. The greatest example of this wall between church and state was the king's decision to align with Protestant-led England, because, quote, it was better to have England with France than against it. Louis finished the expulsion of the Jewish people and the work related to his broader legal code in 1685, which shouldn't be too surprising considering his penchant for work. Louis was one of those bosses who bothered you even when they knew that you had called in sick. In fact, when his chief superintendents were ill, he would often show up at their houses to both check up on them and to get some work done. The king, who went through a number of his own illnesses, some grave, had the philosophy that sadness creates illness. Be cheerful, he said, and you will be cured. I myself have somewhat adopted a similar worldview, but more in the line with the fictional character of Barney Stinson, who claims that rather than getting sick, he just gets more awesome. Since the Sun King loved work so much, he assumed that working on the days in which you called in sick would be part of the cure. The hidden rules of poverty apply to time as well, the one thing that is limited for every single one of us. Accordingly, the poor among us tend to focus on immediate concerns with decisions being made for the moment based upon whatever feelings are foremost on their mind. The middle class tends to focus on the future, being sure to make decisions in the now that they believe will avoid future ramifications or produce benefits for them later on. The rich tend to focus on history and tradition within their decision-making process, resulting in decisions that serve to maintain their legacy after they depart. Louis definitely falls into the rich category, as he upheld or expanded all of his predecessors' traditions. Uniquely, however, was how well Louis could move throughout each social group while upholding tradition. Coming out of the Fronde protests, young Louis wasn't yet an absolute ruler who couldn't be told no. In contrast to the court that his mother had run, he remained fairly unconventional in private. Individuals were allowed to chat with him and bring up subjects that they wished to speak on. Louis would play guitar or the lute with visiting musicians. He even composed his own music, which unlike the infamous Nero who fiddled while Rome burned, his arrangements actually made sense. He remained overly polite throughout his reign, never failing to doff his cap at a lady who was walking by. He seemed to feel particularly at home when he was around the military, especially when he was around his guards, which he handpicked and made sure that he knew them and their families intimately. These familiar relationships came easy to the king, as Louis seemed to always actively enjoy being in the field with his soldiers. Immediately after his coronation, perhaps in a bid to show that he was the sole ruler of France, he set forth for a siege of Condé, his former ally turned enemy during the Frand. The Gazette de France reported during this outing that the king finds the air of camps and armies more agreeable than that of the court. By all accounts, he took the job of commander-in-chief seriously, even staying up till two in the morning performing inspections of the troops and trenches for weeks at a time. 
He rode alongside with the men on horseback while campaigning as a young man, sometimes staying in the saddle for a full 15 hours. He was in real danger during these somewhat unnecessary expeditions. Although he wasn't fighting on the front, his position was close enough that any enemy breakthrough would endanger him. His insistence at being on location also exposed himself to the dangers of the medieval world. During the Battle of Dunkirk in 1658, Louis caught an illness due to the proximity of nearby marshes whose waters had become infected with bacteria. According to historian Philip Manzel, the laxatives, enemas, blisters, and bloodlettings doctors applied to him would have killed many stronger men. Even Mazarin was fearful of this incident as he admitted that the king is very strong, but the disease is rampant. The near-death experience was a leading factor in the king's decision to get married early. Which gives us a nice segue to return to the work of Dr. Ruby Payne in order to examine the hidden rules of poverty regarding the concept of love. Each of the three socioeconomic groups tend to view love as conditional. However, each social class views the conditions differently. The poor tend to believe that love and marriage is conditional, purely based upon whether or not you like the individual, meaning as long as two people liked each other, nothing should stand in the way of their courtship. As you move up the social ladder to the middle class, love becomes conditional based upon achievement, meaning that the middle class is likely to ignore opportunities with those that they like due to perceived hierarchies, reaching for individuals who are deemed by society as appropriate for them. The rich add the condition of social standings and connections to the exercise of finding a partner, meaning that they are unlikely to move outside of their approved social circles. The rich marrying the rich help to ensure that their offspring will continue to be wealthy. The middle class's fear of reaching too high and being rejected, or too low and therefore settling, also helps to maintain their class status in the middle. It is the poor who are most likely to travel outside of the bounds set by their economic status. Thus, they are the most likely to strike it big by convincing someone who has fallen for them to take the plunge into wedded bliss, despite their ability to pay for their portion of the wedding ceremony. Like all royal marriages, Louis's bride was selected in order to further his ambitions as well as solving a problem for his regime. The problem was that France and Spain were at the moment embroiled in a somewhat minor war whose beginnings could be found within the Fronde. In the aftermath of the uprising, Spain had taken in Condé, the leader of one of the larger groups of French rebels. Condé's continued distance from the king, as well as an occasional raid into his former lands, had kept the two nations at odds. Despite the fact that the French and Spanish royal families had regularly come to marriage agreements, these prior connections would continue due to the family's social standings. The Spanish Habsburgs, in particular, were regarded as the ideal marriage partners throughout Europe, renowned for their ability to produce heirs. As double first cousins, meaning that they shared both sets of grandparents, 
Louis and the Infanta of Spain and Portugal, Maria Teresa, seemed perfect for each other. The marital negotiations were intense, with Spain demanding a renunciation clause, which would publicly announce that any children produced through the marriage would not be eligible for succession to the Spanish crown. This would outlaw the exact thing that France hoped to gain from the coupling, for they had always dreamed of expanding their borders past the Pyrenees, extending their southern border to the Iberian Peninsula. The French negotiators agreed to the clause, but only on the condition that the Spanish paid a fortune for Maria's dowry. Ingeniously, Louis then regularly worked to disrupt and systematically destroy the Spanish economy, eventually resulting in a default on the agreed-upon dowry payment. The result of their inability to pay off their debt was that the Bourbons secured a member of Louis's bloodline a spot on the Spanish throne. But we'll get to that part of the story in the fifth episode of this series, as his machinations directly contribute to the setting of the Sun King. Although it worked out in the long run, France was equally in need of the money at this moment in history. To exemplify their own financial difficulty, I will point out that Queen Anne pawned some of her own jewels in order to provide resplendent presents to her new daughter-in-law. Where was all of Louis's money going? Freed from the daily running of the country, Mazarin had reinvested his free time into plundering the state coffers. His greed knew no bounds. He had already pawned Queen Anne's jewels, thus forcing her to purchase new ones. He even resold a ship that she had gifted him to the French government for nearly double what it was worth. He had shadily accumulated so many state artifacts that he once threw a white elephant party in which every guest received a prize. Among the freebies was a diamond worth 4,000 gold coins. The happy royal couple were first married by proxy, which is a really weird process where two fill-ins claim to be you for a fake ceremony so that you can then say that you were already married. This was done because of the two nations' current hostilities. Evidently, it was conceivable to kill your would-be in-laws before the marriage ceremony, but not afterwards. The initial meeting between the now-married couple was also the first time that Louis's mother Anne had seen her brother, the King of Spain, in 45 years. Like most who had known Anne during that time period, he responded to her coldly. Unlike the humiliating public ceremony that his father had been subjected to, Louis flexed his muscles and arranged for a private consummation of the marriage. Evidently, the night went well, as Louis was described to be in the best possible mood the next day. It also surely pleased Louis, who wanted the entire French court to revolve around himself, that his wife showed very little interest in either palace intrigue or court politics. Instead, she spent much of her time with the court gambling and playing cards. Love may have never truly set in for the two, but for most of their life together the couple shared the same table and bed, both of which were uncommon for many politically arranged marriages. The couple entered Paris for the first time on August 26, 1660, 
and gave birth to a son on November 1, 1661. Over the course of their first year as a married couple, Louis was said to have been faithful to his wife. That, however, won at last past the birth of his son. Louis's interest in women began at an early age, and as it has been said, a life lived in love will never be dull. His first physician, who was a bit of a quack, diagnosed him with venereal disease while simultaneously declaring him to be a virgin. Despite an exhausting coronation day, Louis, aged 13, put off bed in order to stay up all night chatting up the princesses of the court. He even fell deeply head over heels in love with Mazarin's niece two years before he was to be wed. That particular romance began when Louis was informed by her uncle that Marion Mancini had cried for him during his infectious brush with death while on campaign. The two had been close when Louis was a child. Upon reconnecting, the two read poetry to each other and delighted in the sharing of romance tales. As a gentleman, he even began to personally escort her back home after dances that occurred in his ballroom. Initially, he followed her carriage with his own, before then acting as her coachman, before eventually traveling inside of her own vehicle. Letters passed between the youths often as many as five times a day. Mazarin tried to forbid his niece's feelings, but even I am wise enough to know that forbidding a young girl's love is the surest way to send her running heedlessly towards it. The cardinal lectured her on knowing her place in society and to avoid trying to reach above the station that God had granted her. He simultaneously reminded Louis that the crown was not an individual, but an institution, one which had an obligation to always do what was right for the nation. The king showed that he had the listening skills of a young man in love by his response, which involved sending Marie a puppy with an inscribed collar. It took Mazarin threatening to retire to Italy along with revealing the affair to the Spanish royal family in an effort that would surely shatter the marriage contract in order to break up the two young lovebirds. Manzel reveals that private feelings yielded to public pressures. The monarch triumphed over the man. I use the example to show that Louis was capable of love, even if his politically arranged marriage never provided it to him. Despite barriers, love tends to find a way. Louis was drawn back to Marie Mancini about a year into his marriage. For her part, the new queen clearly expressed upon the court her steadfast desire to split the two up, which finally occurred in 1661, with Marie being sold off as the wife of a Roman prince. Her coupling was an unhappy one, however, and seven years later, Marie ran back to Paris. To her shock, Louis ignored her. It was two of his advisors who emerged to inform her that first, he had no interest in ever seeing her again. Secondly, he recommended that she move into a convent and adopt the cloth of a nun. She did so dying alone with her religious sisters in Pisa in 1715, 
the same year that witnessed the death of her former flame, the Sun King. Louis had moved on, his penchant for encouraging women to play a part in his court and public life put him in intimate contact with a number of women who were attracted to the possibility of securing a position of influence. Unlike the products of his marriage to Marie Theresa, the legions of mistresses that followed were able to carry children that managed to avoid the fates of his inbred children. Manzel reveals that six of his eleven known children by mistresses reached the age of fifteen, whereas only one of the six by his wife-slash-cousin were able to make it past the age of five. It wasn't widely accepted at the time, but the Spanish Habsburgs were genetic ticking time bombs. Marie Theresa's half-brother was one of the grandest examples of the dangers of this practice of royal inbreeding. Known as Charles the Bewitched, his anomalies were so pronounced that he was forced to name one of Louis's grandsons as his heir to the Spanish throne. Women were also used by Louis to strategically place those who would spread French influence in order to project French soft power. He even paid 600 livres to place a French woman as the Queen of Portugal. He bought the crowns of Poland, Moderna, Savoy, and Tuscany for significantly cheaper sums. It has been said that in this Game of Thrones, the right marriage was the equivalent of a major victory on the battlefield. The practice wasn't perfect, however, and there always remained the risk of defeat, as happened in the marriage of British monarch Charles I to Louis's sister, Henrietta Marie. The nuptials had tanked the English king's popularity and contributed to the civil war that ultimately deposed him. Louis's decision to jump into the complicated world of mistresses seems to have begun in the summer of 1661, as the court traveled to Fontainebleau, a place known for its luxurious dances, plays, hunts, and swimming parties. It was eloquently described by a Spanish duke as a real brothel. Luis de la Valere was up first. She was one of the queen's maids of honor and was said to please the king with her timidity and sincerity. One wonders whether that timidness came about because of the presence of the king, or the fact that she was merely 16. Proving that the king wasn't quite comfortable with these types of clandestine activities, their first physical encounter occurred in an attic. Luis caught his eye first, but the court of Louis XIV was filled with what was described as a paradise of women who were all seeking to better their family's own station in life through an encounter with the Sun King. Soon, an entire bureaucracy was created just to manage the king's hidden love life, arranging covert meetings, facilitating the women's movements in and out of his palaces, supervising their pregnancies, as well as delivering payments to illegitimate children and their mothers. The queen tolerated her husband's behavior, but was said to be so jealous that she regularly vomited upon each discovery of her husband's infidelity. The website This Is Versailles lists 31 women in chronological order who were known to have slept with Louis. 
but the website is quick to note that one-night stands might have slipped by the otherwise ever-cautious courtiers who compiled the data in real time. Louis' poster boy status for the hashtag MeToo movement may have first emerged due to the oddity of his first sexual encounter with Catherine Bellier, a baroness, who was approached by Louis' mother to make sure that he was properly prepared for his marriage night. For the baroness's efforts, she received an estate as well as a pension. Subsequent women found their fortunes change due to their close encounters with the Sun King. Luis de la Valere managed to hold his attention for six years and became the Duchess de Vajors in exchange for her services provided. But by the age of 22, she was cruelly described to have lost her looks with a nose that was too large and a face too long for Louis. She was displaced by Madame de Montespan. Louis claimed to his wife that he was merely up late working on dispatches when she asked why the king's guard had removed themselves from between his workroom and the madam's bedchambers in 1667. When the queen became officially informed of the king's work routine, she assured them that, I am not such a dupe as they imagine, but I am prudent. I see things clearly. Mansell claims that the king was known to like women who were young and appetizing, and was believed to enjoy them like post-horses, which you ride only once and then never see again. Not all women tacitly accepted the king's mistreatment. Louis insulted the size of the Princess of Monaco, only to have her publicly claim that, quote, although his power was great, his scepter was very small. When a scorned husband lodged a complaint about the king's evening activities, such as the one that the Marquis de Montespan levied in 1668, they often found themselves punished, sometimes with imprisonment. The knowledge of his infidelity became so common that the Pope ordered that he cease receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist until his infidelity came to an end. Though Louis was quite religious, he evidently worshipped women more and went without Christ's body and blood, except during major holidays, for nearly a decade spent philandering. Madame Montespan didn't give up her position as the preferred mistress easily, the result of which became known as La Affaire des Poisons. In the scandal, Montespan was accused of poisoning a 19-year-old who had caught the king's eye. The special prosecutor assigned to uncover what happened to the young lady arrested 194 and executed 34 individuals after cracking down on Paris's underworld of aphrodisiacs, abortion providers, poison sellers, and practicers of sacrilegious satanic worship. Despite mountains of evidence which the king later burned, he refused to believe that his lover had anything to do with the murder and pulled the plug on the investigation, as well as his relationship to her. Madame de Montenon followed in her wake with court gossiping in 1676 that her influence and favor were increasing every day. 
Queen Maria Theresa clawed her way back into the king's favor in 1680 after an illness had sidelined her, and another plea from the bishop encouraged him to set aside his adulterous ways. Although she had experienced intermittent illness after surviving smallpox in 1667, her 1680 bout with sickness would prove fatal three years later. Louis remarked that her death was the first time she's caused me any bother. He took the surprising step of marrying his mistress shortly after his wife's death. Francois de Aubigny, the Marquise de Maintenon, never became queen, however, as they were married in secret. But everyone in the court knew the truth of their relationship after he legitimized their children together. This was an act of marriage for love, rather than power, and the king was willing to keep it secret in order to protect it. Despite his penchant for younger women, Montanan was two years his elder. He respected her thoughts, allowing her and her alone to talk to him out of turn. Historians point to her wielding the court influence of a prime minister whom courtiers first approached in order to gain access to Louis. Her influence greatly increased women's access to education and cemented Catholicism as the religion of France, eventually resulting in the expulsion and persecution of all others. While it was common for royalty to maintain a harem's worth of mistresses, it was uncommon to care for the children that were produced from such couplings. Elevating her children with him made sense to the court, but Louis went further regularly granting titles to his bastard sons and making sure that his illegitimate daughters were married off to legitimate husbands. As he did with his legitimate royal daughters, he regularly spent time conversing with them in the evenings. According to the hidden rules of poverty, the poor attempt to possess people. The middle class possess things and the wealthy among us count among their possessions one-of-a-kind objects, legacies, and pedigrees. Nothing represents all three in Louis' life as the Palace of Versailles. Until the decision to turn Versailles from a hunting lodge into the world's most extravagant palace occurred, Louis was a monarch on the move. Shortly after his marriage, the court traveled every fourth day, moving 22 miles per day for a total distance of 2,000 miles a year. This is quite the feat, considering that the court consisted of 15,000 individuals and 10,000 horses. In 1660, the king visited 63 cities of the realm. Occasionally, the court was forced to travel to put down rebellions. One such moment was his decision to put down a rebellion in Marseille. The revolt had begun as a protest to new taxes levied by Louis. For that particular quest, 6,000 soldiers were added to the traveling court menagerie. A reoccurring spectacle happened with each visit. The king was met at what automatically became known as the Royal Gate. He then confirmed privileges on the local political leaders, or any individual had come to his attention as a loyalist. The city authorities would present to him the golden keys to the city, upon which he would enter to massive cheers of long live the king, 
before taking up residence for a day or two at one of the town's more magnificent buildings. Despite growing up in the lap of luxury, Louis rarely complained in these early years about the accommodations that he found in some of the more rural portions of his kingdom. He would have still remembered sleeping in straw the night that he was forced to run during the Frand. He also knew intimately what it was like to travel with and sleep near a battlefield. He was granted the best that each town had to offer and rarely thumbed his nose at what he was given. His initial home base in Paris was the Louvre, which before it became the world's foremost art gallery was a French fortress. Built by King Philip Augustus in 1190, the necessity of a military home within the city reflected the everyday dangers that the citizens of Paris faced. Although the city's walls encasing a mere 22 acres of the city had famously kept Joan of Arc out, Paris's location contains absolutely no natural geographic defenses, making it exceptionally vulnerable to incursions from the north, in the case of Richard the Lionheart's England, as well as from the east, a fact exploited by Germany under Adolf Hitler. Thus, the Louvre's first iteration was as the French equivalent of the Tower of London. Louis made the fortress his home within the city, reflecting his love and hate relationship with the city of love a city which had risen against him during the Fronde. There are a couple ways of dealing with tragic fear-inducing events. One is to hide behind walls in a false belief that ignoring the problem will prevent it from reoccurring. Or you can go out and confront the fear, making sure that it doesn't hold control over you or your decision-making. Louis was among those who believed in freedom from fear transforming the city of Paris into one of the world's first modern cities. He began by tearing down the city's outer medieval walls in 1669. The former intricate system of defenses was turned into a tree-lined boulevard for public carriage rides. He introduced public lighting with more than 5,000 lamps being hung 15 feet in the air along rows of buildings in 1167 in order to encourage his citizens to venture out into the night. The city still retains its nickname of the City of Lights. Paris under Louis' reign became one of the world's safest urban centers and became renowned for its near lack of beggars in the streets. As part of his opening up of the city, the king allowed all citizens to enjoy the Louvre. The fortress walls were left open during the day in order to allow Parisians to wander the gardens. Even the king's residential area was open for most of the day. Louis believed that the free-flowing traffic would help him understand the people better, perhaps enabling him to prevent their next revolutionary act. But the French took access to the king to never-before-seen heights, even more so than what we witness in the modern age of the Kardashians. The King's Day at the Louvre began with the Levy, which is French for rising. Prior kings had allowed selected officials to come before their liege as he was getting dressed, which allowed them to partially speak their mind to the king and perhaps asked for their grievances to be considered. 
Louis dutifully performed the act every single day, rising to greet the day in front of carefully selected officials who waited in silence within his bedchambers. The king was a noted early riser, but always returned to his bed in time for the ceremony. When the curtains from his bedposts opened, the king was thus immediately greeted by supplicants. He performed the routine in reverse each night in what was known as the couture. Physicians even followed their lord to watch as he relieved himself in his chamber pot. He rarely bathed, but was rubbed down with oils and perfumes by these physicians before proceeding to be shaved by his valets every two days. The chosen audience for each act was evenly split into seven groups, with each group entering the chambers at different intervals for the daily ritual. Louis began to notice early on how much leverage this system gave him over France's aristocrats, and expanded the lever and couture to other portions of his day, particularly mealtimes. For his dinner, served at 10 o'clock each night and lasting until 11, guards ushered commoners and merchants who came to observe the king. They would watch for a minute or two before walking past him and bowing quickly in silence before yielding their spot to the next in line. The axe helped to confirm Louis's life upon a pedestal. One which, through the belief in the divine right of kings, had been ordained by God himself. Norbert Elias provides a detailed study on what he referred to as a carefully calculated strategy of regulation, consolidation, and supervision. He found that conferring minor benefits, such as arriving later during the lever, allowed him to confer visible pleasure or anger towards influential members of the court. If you were demoted or left out of the process, everyone else in the court immediately knew of it and began to gossip. Elias reveals that this cultivated jealousy enabled Louis to divide and conquer in order to keep the fragmented nobles under his control. Showcasing a full awareness of what he was doing, Louis himself wrote that one of the most visible effects of his power was to give an infinite value to something which in itself was nothing. He would accordingly strategically choose the location and time to announce decisions, oftentimes hinting at a choice in order to build suspense and demand throughout the week. It was a daily strategy, as the Duke of St. Simon wrote that with a watch one could, from 300 leagues away, say with accuracy what he was doing, as the king's day was time to the minute to allow the officers in his service to plan their own work accordingly. From morning to evening his day ran like clockwork. The Versailles Trust reveals to us the daily highlights. The lever was scheduled for 8.30 in the morning, during which 100 male spectators watched him get dressed and have a bowl of soup, some bread, and his first cup of wine. At 10 a.m., a formal procession began down the Hall of Mirrors, where the waiting crowd would be allowed to call out to him, or perhaps slip him a note on his way to a 30-minute mass. Council began at 11 a.m., with different committees scheduled to meet on different days. At 1, the king took lunch with individuals whom he personally chose based upon the day's activities. At 2 p.m., the king would go for a walk or perhaps a hunt, 
before arriving back into the public's eye around 6pm for that day's indoor entertainment, upon which he would sign or study paperwork that had been arranged for him. Dinner came at 10pm, followed by socializing with the court, particularly the women of the court before going through the cochir to officially end his day. The Louvre was not designed to be an open court, with more than 800 carriages arriving each day in the hopes of catching a glimpse of the king. Louis had attempted to remedy these problems as well as to beautify the medieval fortress, including bringing in top artists from Rome as well as architects from England, but its skeleton remained that of a medieval fortress. The solution was the transformation of his family's hunting lodge in Versailles. Louis XIII had begun the palace's transformation in 1631 by turning the cottage into a chateau that was 13 windows wide. Louis's love of the countryside encouraged him to enlarge the gardens in 1661. Soon, the project was eating up the entire budget of France, with the Minister of Finances claiming that the construction project had become part of Louis's endless search for glory. Anyone who has been to Versailles likely would agree with the inscription on the palace gates, which reads, World, come and see what I see, and what the sun admires. Rome in a palace, an empire in Paris and all the Caesars in one king. The Sun King desired Versailles to become his home, one that would prove to be the most magnificent royal palace in the world. It was a fool's quest, with Versailles sitting more than an hour away from Paris, which remained the center of the king's power. It was also positioned on land that wasn't geographically ready to brace the infrastructure that was needed to support the 10,000-person court. In fact, the magnificent fountains were only turned on when the king was around, because otherwise Versailles would have drained its water source dry within the first decade of its existence. Perhaps this was why, during the king's most spectacular parties, wine flowed from the fountains instead. The transformation cost lives, with a madam of the court claiming in 1678 that cartloads of dead workers were being removed every night. In 1669, it became his principal residence, and after 1671, he never slept another night in Paris, which resulted in another transformation for the Louvre. Louis separated the fortress into wings, with one becoming devoted to artists who could both live and work there, another for sick or wounded soldiers, and a third for academia. This early inclusion of art resulted in the Louvre becoming what it is today, although the glass pyramids that everyone recognizes weren't added until 1988. Versailles continues to this day to be a spectacular display of power and prestige. Chronicler Charles Perrault wrote in 1687 that it is not a palace. It is an entire city, superb in its grandeur, superb in its nature. It is a world where the diverse miracles of the entire universe are gathered. 
It contains 357 mirrors, which until this point, the construction of which had been a Venetian state secret. In fact, those responsible for making Versailles mirrors were later assassinated for their contribution. Its gardens cover more than 30,000 acres and include nearly 400 sculptures, 1,400 fountains, and 20 miles of water pipes that are buried beneath the surface. The palace is so large that the king's food was typically served cold because of how long it took to transport it from the kitchen. Louis' menagerie at Versailles was the first zoo to ever categorize its animals by species and included 49 species of birds, lions, a camel, and a rhinoceros. Foreign rulers provided gifts of ostrich, crocodiles, and an elephant, whose eventual dissection allowed scientists to finally figure out the differences between male and female elephants maximus. Pineapples, oranges, lemons, vanilla, and coffee were among the exotic species of plants that were grown within the palace grounds. After the king revealed a desire for figs, Versailles began to produce 4,000 a day from 700 trees which had been brought in to satisfy his cravings. Imagination was the only limiting factor for the king at Versailles. Angered by the slow growth of trees within his designated hunting grounds, the king transported an entire forest of mature trees from Flanders. At the height of the migration, nearly 3 million beech trees and 600,000 willow trees were moved to stock the forest at Fontainebleau. The grounds provided ample enjoyment for Louis, who at the age of 19 once shot 112 rabbits within five hours just to satisfy a bet with Mazarin. Although the history books all claim that Versailles served to neuter the nobles, that was never the point. This palace came into being because of Louis's desire to live in luxury. Versailles allowed him to truly live as the Sun King. Improvement to candles, torches, and fireworks allowed him to move more entertainment outside, further demonstrating the Sun King's ability to turn night into day. Still, the court's continuous presence eventually made even it seem stuffy. In order to escape the circus that he had created, he turned to Marley, another palace that became an intimate escape from Louis' normal life. Guests at Versailles fawned over the honor of accompanying the king on a weekend getaway, oftentimes asking multiple times per day for an invite to Marley. Fountains ran all day at the king's vacation home after engineers finished the Machine de Marley, the largest machine of its time, which used 259 pumps and 14 water wheels to bring water from the Seine River up the 535 feet of elevation needed to reach the king's getaway. His first party at Marley was held in 1684, and then proceeded to grow exponentially to the point that Louis spent four months out of the year there in 1700. The park contained intricately designed rooms separated by carefully cultivated hedgerows. 
As Versailles was dedicated to politics, Marley became known for pleasures. Meals were eaten without formality along round tables. All costs were borne by the king for his hundred chosen guests, and he demanded a round-the-clock entertainment for them. Gambling, which had been made illegal in the Code Louis, was encouraged within the topiary walls of Marley, with cards becoming the means of entry to the court. Elaborate dances were organized. Indeed, Louis even had a hand in encouraging the invention of the concept of choreography. Another area in which Louis doesn't fit Dr. Payne's hidden rules of poverty comes in how he treated money. While the wealthy typically prefer to conserve slash invest their fortune, the poor believe that the purpose of money is to spend it, either on essentials or for something that will create immediate gratification. The middle class manage their money, and the wealthy use their money to create more. Louis spent his fortune with reckless abandon, and it was all spent in the name of pleasure. Even before Versailles' transformation, Louis's court had a hard time living within its means. Taxes were the main source of income, but the king wasn't able to tax the wealthy stakeholders in France, namely the aristocracy and the clergy. Ratcheting up the taxes on commoners did little to raise more funds, but was absolutely responsible for making their lives more miserable. In 1663, expenses were 47 million livres, while the kingdom's income was only valued at 48 million. In 1670, expenses surpassed revenue by 3 million, and in 1680, the expenses were 96 million to only 92 million in income. Louis's government did occasionally attempt to hide their incremental tax increases, including a requirement that obligated everyone under the age of seven to buy at least seven livres of salt a year, of which the government was the only supplier. Unwilling to rein in his own personal spending, taxes rose unceasingly from 1680 until the end of his rule. The peacetime solution to his monetary woes was the creation and sale of public offices. So many meaningless posts were created that Louis asked his minister of finance, who will buy them? The public servant replied that your majesty ignores one of the finest prerogatives of the king of France, which is that when a king creates an office, God instantly creates a fool to buy it. The jobs themselves were worthless. Access to the king was what nobles were really buying. Historian Michael Farquhar tells us that Louis XIV was a genius at making Versailles appear to be the pinnacle of prestige and honor for the thousands of nobles who lived there, with himself as the radiant center of it all. In this way, the king utterly obliterated their ancient power by having them chase the artificial gold that he created and dangled before them. The once mighty aristocracy fought for the honor of cramped rooms, handing the king his shirt in the morning, holding a candle for him, or accompanying him on a hunt. The desire to serve the king extended to the made-up titles that the king was willing to sell, 
It is estimated that more than 50,000 bureaucratic roles were created and sold in France during his reign. In fact, the term itself comes from the French, as it was their administrator of commerce, Jean-Claude Marie Vincent de Gournay, who coined the term bureaucratie, or government by desks. Our last exploration regarding the hidden rules of poverty is about clothing, for which the poor value individual style, using their clothing to provide an expression of their personality. The middle class, meanwhile, tend to value clothing for its quality and how well it fits with current trends. The wealthy among us tend to be braver in their fashion choices, valuing them for their artistic sense and expression. Oftentimes, the defense of the rich's clothing choices will involve the dropping of the designer's name, rather than an actual defense of the design. Louis XIV was known for his extravagant fashions, which due to the nature of the French court always seeking to please their lord spread throughout the kingdom. My students snicker at portraits of the Sun King, which display the king in a poorly worn wig, six-inch heels, which produced well-defined calves that were prominently displayed through the king's pantyhose, before giving way to what appears to be a snuggie thrown over his head. The king's arms and neck are both covered in enough lace to make two or three dresses for some of today's leading ladies on the red carpets. But it isn't 100% clear whether this look was by design or worn out of necessity. Textiles, or the clothing industry, employed an astoundingly high one-third of all French workers during this time period. That meant that any policy which obligated individuals to buy new clothes immediately became a boon to the French economy and its people. Beginning in 1663, advisors encouraged the king to go out of his way to wear bright colors. They even substituted the drab gray colors of their military uniforms, which was a color of cloth that originated in England for a more colorful homemade French version. At one point, Louis required his son to burn an English coat that he had recently purchased, while decreeing that no coats were to be worn by the court unless they were produced in France. Foreign lace was likewise banned in 1665, after which Louis began to wear French-produced lace in order to boost its popularity. The fashion industry didn't provide the king with free samples in order to facilitate his role as trendsetting influencer, however, as the king spent 18,000 livres on lace in just one month of 1666. Dolls and state-funded fashion magazines began to be produced in order to showcase the latest court trends. The king's work paid off, as lace quickly became the most fashion-forward accessory in Europe. The Sun King's influence remains. Today, three of the top fashion magazines are produced in England, but are graced with the French names of Vogue, Elle, and Marie Claire. Soon, the king began to utilize fashion to indicate status and prestige. In 1664, he hand-selected 50 nobles who were the only ones allowed to wear gold or silver lace and embroidery. 
1670, he began to limit which men of the court had the right to wear red heels, something that the king was an early adopter of. Likewise, expensive jewelry suggested wealth that Louis didn't actually have. Again, it was all by design, as his finance minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert revealed that fashions were to France what the mines of Peru were to Spain. Louis worked diamonds into his apparel in ways that few of us could imagine, including their use as buttons in the buckles of his shoes and on the braid of his pocket flaps. Out of necessity, Louis was a wearer of wigs. Students of history are familiar with this practice as they have seen pictures of wig-wearing British judges as well as America's founding fathers ensconced in their white, well-coiffed wigs. It was Louis who made it fashionable for nobles to hoist powdered wigs upon their foreheads. But unlike George Washington, Louis wore his in order to hide his baldness, which had started at the youthful age of 17. The STD of syphilis was a leading cause of hair loss at this age, and is suggested to be the reason that the king donned the wig in the first place. Either way, the trend stuck, as Louis was the original king of fashion, ripping the title of fashion capital of the world away from Madrid. Our next episode will cover the same time period, but will focus on the foreign policy of Louis's court, including his penchant for expansion through war, his love and weakness for the British monarchs, and his pursuit of global hegemony. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.